afternoon and welcome to the 152nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will talk about journalism on campus in the pandemic with Jacob DeCastro and Elizabeth Lawrence. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been getting, continuing to get um, really, really wonderful suggestions for future episodes. And with the election coming up, we will have a number of episodes uh, just before election day on election day and just after uh, talking about the pandemic and the election. If you have ideas for those episodes or if you would like to participate, please send me an email at sgk23drexel.edu, or you can get in touch with me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Thanks. As of today, October 20th, 2020, there are 1,121,365 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 8,243,223 cases of COVID-19 in the United States, up from 8,201,554 reported yesterday. And now, as of today, there's a total of 220,649 deaths reported in the United States, up from 219,950 yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, deaths of a mother and son are reminders of the dangers of COVID, despite what Trump says. This was published October 19th in the Philadelphia Inquirer by Janice Armstrong. President Donald Trump reportedly recovered from COVID-19 after being given several experimental treatments, urging don't be afraid of it and don't let it dominate your lives. Supposedly, we need, in Trump's opinion, to develop herd immunity, a concept that infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci says is dangerous. Meanwhile, almost 220,000 people in the United States have died. Families have been ravaged by not just COVID-19, but also by the carnage it can leave in its wake, as it did with the Logan family from Darby, Darby Township, Delaware County. Theirs had been a tight-knit working-class family, but that was before Eric Omar Logan, a 49-year-old correctional officer, began experiencing COVID-like symptoms in early September. His 77-year-old mother, Eleanor Logan, tried to care for him. She left meals outside his bedroom door in their home in the 1400 block of Trivet Avenue. Soon it became apparent that he needed medical attention after Eric was admitted to Media's Riddle Hospital on September 10th. Doctors discovered that he was suffering from double pneumonia as well as COVID-19. Then Eleanor started feeling sick herself. She underwent coronavirus testing, but was initially told the result was negative. 
Later, though, the mother of three learned she, too, had contracted the coronavirus and was admitted to Mercy Catholic Medical Center's Mercy Fitzgerald campus. Going in, she was extremely worried about her son. They were really close, Grant Eldridge, a family friend, said on Thursday. It didn't seem like he was getting better. He was kind of at a standstill. Eleanor died on September 28th. At first, family members grappled with whether even to tell Eric, but wound up doing so. Then a few days later, on October 1st, they were at Earl L. Foster Funeral Home making final arrangements for Eleanor when they got worried that Eric, too, when they got word that Eric, too, was gone. We were literally picking out caskets, recalled Eldridge, Eric's best friend from childhood. Mother and son are buried atop each other in the same plot at Mount Lawn Cemetery. After the graveside service, about 300 people met up at Conway Park for a celebration of their lives. It took place on a beautiful sunny afternoon. A DJ played rap songs that Eric had recorded under his stage name, Stop Lee, with Eldridge, who went by Eldrex. Attendees posed for photos by a truck bearing a billboard-sized photo of Eric and Eleanor standing with their arms around each other. Eric was a very encouraging person. He loved kids. When I had my kids, that was like their father more than their uncle, said his sister Dawn Smith of Orlando, Florida. He was just that guy. Friends sold t-shirts emblazoned with Eric's face and favorite sayings to raise money for his three children. People reminisced about how they referred to him as the neighborhood's mayor and first responder. The vibe was light. Still, there was no getting past the real reason they had come together. For a mother and son to go at the same time, it's just devastating, said Johnny Tillaferro, 50, a social worker. It's too late for the Logans, but not for us. If reading about a mother and son dying just days apart isn't enough to jolt folks into wearing face masks and practicing social distancing, then I don't know what will. We never thought it would touch us the way it did. It's just a thing until it's on your front step, Eldridge said, and then it becomes real. Okay, we're going to turn to our discussion for today and very excited to introduce my guests and glad to have them on. Jacob DeCastro is a senior journalism student at Indiana University Bloomington. He's the editor-in-chief of the Indiana Daily Student, an independent student newspaper covering Indiana University in Bloomington. Prior to this role, he served as a managing editor of digital design editor and reporter. Elizabeth Lawrence is a senior at the University of Michigan and editor-in-chief of the Michigan Daily, an independent student newspaper covering the university and Ann Arbor. She started her role in January of this year and will finish in December. She oversees the paper's coverage of COVID-19 and manages its remote operations. Jacob and Elizabeth, thanks so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is looking like there today. Jacob, can I start with you, please? Of course. Well, first of all, Scott, thank you for having me on today. Um, I'm calling from Bloomington, Indiana. If you don't know where Bloomington is, it's about an hour and a half south of Indianapolis. Um, and the pandemic situation here today is, you know, it's been it's been getting worse. Um, while case reported case numbers that the university releases every week show it's been pretty steady, steady. Um, the whole, the state of Indiana as a whole moved to fully reopen a few weeks ago, um, and we are seeing the consequences of that with record breaking case numbers announced by the state each day. So 
things are sadly getting worse here. Can you give us a sense of, of what percentage of students are on campus and how that breaks down at this time? So the university did several, took several steps to try to reduce the number of people on campus um, and de-densify people living in residence halls. So a lot of people are living in singles. Um, I'm not quite sure the university has released the number of people living in town, especially with the large number of off-campus students. Um, but I do know the university is running a little less than 10,000 tests a week. Um, so that is about, I forget what they said, they released recent numbers and I can check back in on that too. Um, but there are less people than years past. I can tell you that much for sure. Um, and a lot of people have fully online classes. I think about 60% of all classes are taught online. The campus must feel strange. It's a large and usually very bustling campus. It, it, yes. You're finding yes. yourself in, in class, but in a, in a sort of surreal experience of the big lecture hall with just a few people. Yeah. Yep, it's very weird to be in a, a huge lecture hall with just 10 people, um, to a lot of space. Lot no of more space. tripping over people trying to get out of the classroom after taking like a test or something, that's for sure. A lot of pressure too. I went to the University of Texas and I remember those big lecture halls and you know there were certainly places you could sit uh, where you would not be uh, seen by the professor or the TA. And in the, but in the big lecture hall with 10 students, there's no, no, no way of avoiding no way that. <laughs> Well, thanks for that update from, from Bloomington. Elizabeth, I want to ask you the same question. Where are you calling from and what's it looking like there? Yeah, so I'm calling from um, Ann Arbor, University of Michigan. I'm living off campus right now. And actually, most students live off campus. Usually, freshmen tend to live in dorms. And then there's a very large student off campus population here. And today, there was a major development here. Um, we've seen climbing um COVID cases among U of M students for the past especially in the in the past month or so um we are we have a COVID tracker that tracks cases and once it started including students not just living in dorms it it doubled the number of of COVID cases that was showing up um and our quarantine housing has been is now at, it's at 52.8%. And so we've started having to expand that. So um, the county health department issued a two week stay in place order telling students to stay in their residences as much as possible. They're allowed to leave to, to vote, to go to the grocery store, to go to medical appointments and, and a variety of other things. Um, mainly, you know, this is trying to prevent social gatherings because the health department has noted very much a correlation between COVID cases and larger social gatherings um, with people living outside of your household. So you, this story literally just broke and I'm putting the, the link up on yeah. Twitter so people can, can check that out. Is this something that students were prepared for before returning to campus? Was this discussed as a possible option? Yeah, I think this is something people have been, ex this doesn't come as a surprise for sure, especially once the university released its plan with regards to testing and um, it's, it's we do not have widespread mandatory testing whatsoever. So people, we were really concerned about the virus getting out of control, especially with the size of the University of Michigan student population and we're bringing everyone back to dorms. So, or anyone who wants to come back to dorms could, so yeah. Well, it's not the kind of news that you 
want to be breaking, but I think it's another testament to the fact the kind of work that you're both engaged in right now. I mean, your readership is huge, uh, your campuses are huge, and the problems that you're facing there are the size of medium-sized cities in America. Um, so, you know, this is not some small thing that's going on. Elizabeth, I, I want to ask both of you, maybe we'll start with Elizabeth. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the way that um, campus newspaper, your newspaper is organized? And I think particularly, I mean, give us a sense of the scale of it, uh, the newsroom, readership, your reach, but also your relationship to the university leadership, because I think that has been um, one of the key issues for people trying to understand what's happening on campuses is that they're finding out that um, administrations don't, it's not necessarily a democracy always on a college campus. And so news um, media and journalism is really super important on campus in the ways that maybe people hadn't thought of even since back in the 1960s or 70s. So Elizabeth, can you tell us that situation there at Michigan? Yeah, so the Michigan Daily, we are editorially and financially independent from the university. Um, our One of our core missions and purposes is to hold the university administration accountable. We are, I would, I, I think we're actually one of, we're one of, if not the biggest student newspaper in the country. Just this is anecdotally from talking to other student paper editors, but we have over 400 staffers. Um, we have a lot, a lot of people working on the daily and of course varying levels of commitment, but we just have a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of staffers to pull from to write stories. Um, so we're able to cover a lot. Um, especially when you compare it to local newsrooms, which have had to cut down on journalists and um, are really stretched very thin. So, yeah, so we have, you know, we have our news section and that that's separated into different beats. We have various university related beats as well as Ann Arbor and city related beats. And we we really do function as a campus newspaper, but also as the local newspaper for Ann Arbor. And your revenue model, then, if you're not receiving money from the university and you have independence, um, it's it's uh, advertising generated the way that the uh, Detroit paper would be or any other newspaper. Yeah, yeah, and we have donations as well. You know, we have a strong alumni connection, and um, we're we're shifting to we're looking at those revenue opportunities as well. That's a big big one. Four hundred. I mean, I can't, I don't really know how that compares to the, you know, Philadelphia Inquirer even, or to the Detroit Free Press, right, in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't be much smaller than them, are you? I'm actually not sure, but, but yeah, we, we have a lot, a lot of people. And again, it's not, it's not like everyone is writing, you know, I'm five sure. stories a week, but yeah, it's a lot of us. And the size of the University of Michigan student body is ballpark figure Undergrad, it's around 30,000. Okay. Yeah. So that must be, I mean, particularly at this time too, when so many students, I know they're dealing with issues on campus, but so many students are distant, have been distant or will be in the future, reaching them through online um, news must be really important. Have you been able to register that in your circulation? Yeah, well, our, um, our online, our, our site visit numbers have definitely jumped a lot. Um, I have the specific number somewhere, but it's, you know, it's at least I, I think, you know, it's, it's increased our, our page views for month per month have definitely increased. Um, 
And yeah, that's that's something we're thinking about in terms of spreading the news and then also with our recruitment efforts. Um, how do we be inclusive of students that are not on campus right now and are purely engaging in a remote format? Right, right. Well, Jacob, let me get the sense from, from you there, uh, same question about how your newspaper is organized, particularly its relationship to administration. Yeah, for sure. So our paper is organized similar to the Michigan Daily. Um, we are editorially and financially independent of the university with our revenue coming from advertisements, donations, and special events that we do. Um, technically, like if we want to get like really in the weeds here, we're an independent business auxiliary of the university. Um, but with our charter, we have to raise all of our own money and have full editorial control. Um, we have about 100 students actively working for us right now, including about 25 editors, including myself, doing our various news, sports, arts, beats, um, et cetera. And then with university, we try, you know, to have that, you know, relationship with the university that is, you know, mutually beneficial, where they can, where we will work with them on things they want us to cover. And we will also, you know, hold their feet to the fire if need be, especially with, you know, all of this coronavirus data that the university has that we still don't have that they just give us to bits and pieces with every week. That's been a really big point of contention um, with our relationship with the university this semester. But, you know, we try, we try our best to be hold the university accountable um, as well as, you know, student government and other organizations as well. I'm going to just, um, I'm going to stick with this issue of, the difficulty of the relationship because the kinds of stories that uh, both of your newspapers have been breaking have been so important that mainstream media outlets have been covering them and have been covering your work covering those stories and I want to give a shout out to Shivani Patel who's the production assistant um, for COVID calls and she brought to my attention this uh, Washington Post piece from September 19th which I'll also put back up on on Twitter, in which both of you are are discussed in that, and I just want to you know give an example of a couple of the stories that um, came to my attention, and maybe you can talk about them a little bit. Jacob, on the third of September, you had an editorial. The editorial page um, had a piece up in which you asked these questions: Are we in a public health crisis? Is this an emergency? or are we just seeing a spike in cases of the coronavirus? We don't know because Indiana University won't make its data public. Um, that's hard hitting set of questions. Those are the questions on people's minds. And I suppose, you know, students and parents, the idea they're gonna send their students back, they do that with the idea that the university is of course taking all steps necessary to make sure they're safe, but how do we know? And that's how you frame that question. Can you say a little bit about how that editorial came to be and what the reaction was? Did you get the reaction you were looking for from the administration? So in a way, we did get a reaction from the, the administration. Um, not basically in our editorial, we were asking, we had three questions, we had three kind of asks of the university. One was to make its full dashboard public, um, to update it daily, and three, to provide the number of available quarantine beds so since this you know has published now a month and a half ago we still don't have all the information they release their information once a week on wednesday for the previous week so that's 
already a week's old data plus three days, give or take, of lag time. Um, at the beginning, in various webinars, the director of testing said there are about 16 to 20 metrics that IU is looking at you know, to measure the coronavirus um, on campus. They have not released all 16 to 20 of them in their weekly updates. Um, but they did tell us, they have told us how much available bed space there is in the one quarantine residence hall on campus. Um, so, you know, we still we still want and we're still pushing for more information from the university. Um, they have maintained that by giving it once a week and being able to summarize it, you know, give three days to summarize the previous week's data, they're able to provide more context um, to people who look at it. But, you know, we're asking the question is, is this data even useful a week later? How do we make decisions now to address how we're going to, you know, take what kind of actions we're going to take in the future if we're having old data? Um, you know, we're telling the university to trust us to be able to look at the data and make our own conclusions because we, our health, as the editorial said, our health depends on it. How are you, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, requests for data, they are also being echoed by faculty senate, by um other, you know, I don't know, university trustees or people in the community, like what's the the ecosystem here of people who are making this kind of a request? Where does your voice fit in? I think our voice fits in perfectly with, you know, what everybody, at least that I've talked to anecdotally, professors that I've spoken to want. They want this data to be public because these people, you know, staff members, professors, instructors are coming on campus sometimes to teach classes and they have, you know, they have a right to know how bad are things at IU? Um, the community members, people that live in Bloomington that you know aren't affiliated with the university are still affected by a public, if there's a coronavirus outbreak on campus, it's not like we operate, we exist in a bubble. You know, I live off campus right now. You know, people go to, they get their groceries to the same place, people that might have any connection with the university at all. And people here have the right to know the number of cases every day does the bloomington what's the size of the bloomington newspaper are, are you so same size as them larger um the herald times um is like the local daily paper here they just got bought out by gannett um and gannett sadly like you know other newspapers around the country has just kind of gutted the herald times um to the point where i really see and this means this is no disrespect to the Herald Times, but I see us as kind of like the newspaper of record here in town. You know, we just frankly have more reporters and that's no fault of the Herald Times. We have more reporters covering, you know, the university, the city um, that I see us. You know, we also don't have a payroll, which we can get into that, too. But um, I think we're just we're just more accessible to the general public um, for news. It's a remarkable point, and I hope people are making note of that, that in cities that have seen traditional newspapers gutted, the increasing role at this time, the value of student journalism, uh, if it wasn't already apparent, it should be now. Elizabeth, I want to come to you. Same kind of question, and I can't highlight all of the extraordinary um, reporting. I've just been focusing on the editorial page, but you published, the Michigan Daily published a piece on the 12th of this month. I'm just gonna read the, just one bit from it. 
says the Michigan Daily editorial board calls on the university to help outline precautions necessary to compensate for the lack of state legislation that could follow the end of the state of emergency on October 27th. We encourage students to continue wearing masks, washing their hands and social distancing on campus. I don't know if that's now been made moot based on the news that just broke there, but can you tell us what that's highlighting? Because what struck me about that is you're having to translate state health policies to the local context. And that's really important. What was the genesis of that piece and what was the reaction? Yeah, so um, essentially that that was responding to uh, recently, I believe it was a, a few weeks ago, although time is weird now. Um, but uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer extended her state, state of emergency that she declared in March in order to um, enact these widespread state regulations and um, she was brought to court over it and a judge ruled against her um, which you know put in jeopardy or in what what's going to happen with these state orders and how do local um, public health departments and just yeah localities make this up so that that was we i think the editorial board was responding to that and um i mean Clearly, with this with this stay in place order, yeah, the the university and the county have decided they need to make an order of their own in order to actually influence student behavior and stop the spread of COVID. Because we know for it's you know the data clearly shows that the COVID cases are coming from students, and it's the vast majority are I think it was like in between eighteen and twenty two years old. So, um, so they decided to take action on that. that. I want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today we're talking about student journalism and the pandemic with Elizabeth Lawrence and Jacob DeCastro. So let's go back. I'd like to hear, um, I, I assume this is the normal pattern that the editor-in-chief is, is elected in these big campus uh, dailies. This is a lot of work. It's big honor. It's a lot of responsibility, and you do it for one year, basically, usually in the senior year, as I understand it. That's how it was when I was in college. That's, and that's how it is for both of you. Is that right? This is a job you'll have for a year? Yeah. I I started second half of my junior year, took a break okay. over the summer, and then this semester. At, at, I, at the IDS, we do it um, on semester terms, so I was elected for the fall semester. I see. Okay. So, and we had a different editor in the summer and the spring. Okay, so so Jacob, you're coming into this. Uh, you were working at the paper, but you were not editor when the pandemic broke out in the spring. So, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and Elizabeth, you were already in the role when the pandemic broke out in the spring. Is that right? Yeah. Well, let me. Um, I'd like to hear from both of you on this. And Elizabeth, let me start with you. What was it like? to run a newsroom as the pandemic was coming, shut down a newsroom, I guess, go remote, keep things running. I mean, it must have been an extraordinary amount of improvisation. Let us know what that was like. It was it was stressful and very felt very out of the blue. And I think it felt like that for you know many people 
across the country. We were very, at the time, extremely wrapped up in the Michigan presidential primary and Bernie Sanders had just come to campus and there was a huge rally. This was this was literally the, the day before, I think, uh, the university announced um, that classes were going online and the, the World Health Organization announced it was a global pandemic. So it was it was very chaotic. Um, and we, we had kind of a, a final day in the newsroom and then we, the editors and I just had a, had a meeting and decided how we were going to run the rest of the semester. We decided we would continue to do production remotely uh, over, we'd have a Zoom meeting and then we'd edit stories and we created PDF papers to upload onto our issue account as well as publishing online. Um, so we we did that and it was, you know, I, it was really helpful talking to other student newspaper editors across the country. I think it was it was really difficult for all of us, but we we adapted like everyone did. And you know, we miss our newsroom a lot and we're still remote right now that we've stopped doing PDF papers and now we're doing um we're printing papers once a week and we're publishing online and have our newsletter and all of that. Student journalism is no different from professional journalism in the sense that uh traditionally to report stories you have to develop relationships, you have to know the beat, you have to get interviews. Um, so you were having to transition what journalism meant literally in real time. How did the reporters handle that? The reporters were were so impressive. I was really concerned that there would be, you know, it's a very overwhelming time for everyone. I was concerned there'd be a lack of interest and everyone had a lot of stuff going on, but um, everyone really brought their all and, and adjusted to the situation well, I think, and was creative about what kinds of stories to write. And we already, you know, we reach out to sources through email and we'll do phone interviews. And we're, you know, we're all, we all know like how to use the internet and all, <laughs> all of that stuff. And um, so it was, it was really just a matter of, you know, time zones, figuring that out was, was strange. And um, if there were there, you know, when there were protests over the summer on campus, of course we needed reporters to, cover those in person. So we were just figuring that out. Okay, I definitely want to put a pin in that and come back yeah. to that issue of social justice on campus. Uh, Jacob, let me, so now that you've told me you started in the fall semester, that makes that editorial that appeared on September 3rd even more impressive because if I'm not too far off, that was your first, that may have been your first editorial as editor-in-chief. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Okay, that's something. So um, tell us a little bit about the experience from the perspective of the springtime there at IU. Um, so yeah, the spring, um, nobody, you know, to be fair, I was very, I was not, I was, you know, still a staffer, but I was not really as active. It was kind of like, I was like, I'm gonna take a semester off. Um, so I was actually in DC with an internship when everything happened. So watching it from a distance, and then with all my conversations with the spring EIC over the summer about how I plan for, I was like, Lydia, how do you plan for something? And she's like, I didn't have time to plan for this. It just happened. <laughs> um, so I remember when we went remote, the paper, you know, I, the mentality amongst everybody, among everybody was, you know, the show must go on. Um, so while our print physical production stopped, we were still putting out at that time, we were a twice weekly paper. So we were putting PDFs out twice a week. Um, online and still reporting and that stayed through the summer the newsroom was closed you know from the time campus shut down in March until now until um, the fall semester started 
Um, so we basically are doing almost everything remote still. You know, we, the newsroom is open if people want to go in there and you know work socially distanced with masks on. But you know, we're still, you know, many ways we're still adapting to this new remote environment because you know we're so used. To, I remember you know the first three years of working for the paper, it was just you know you would go in and you would work. You'd go in and do your edits with your editor, but now that's all over Zoom, over the phone, over Slack. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's just how it's going to be going forward. Have you managed to adapt? I'd like to hear both of you about this. The I think one of the things when people fall in love with journalism, many of them do in college. And part of that is the esprit de corps of the newsroom. And they get that sense of what it's like to be in the newsroom and the pace of it and, you know, the way journalists start to work. How do you replicate that in a Zoom call or a Slack channel? I know I'm sounding like a person from the 20th century here when I ask this question, but I am from the 20th century. And I was one of these people who fell in love with journalism in high school, actually, my high school paper. Uh, I didn't ever pursue it professionally, but I got a sense even that early. Um, and I have worked at newspapers before. Um, of what it's like, but I can't imagine building that kind of a community or keeping it going remotely. Jacob, can you say a little bit more about how you do that? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, and one of the ways that I tried um, to kind of bridge that gap is by creating like a mentorship program between older and newer staffers this fall, um, because I want to find a way, you know, I remember I started out at the IDS as a page designer and that's how I learned from the people that, you know, were my bosses now that now work at other places like the Washington Post. Like I learned from them by sitting next to them and seeing how they work. And that's just super hard to replicate when we're all in our own separate rooms. And it's, and I really, you know, I really hope that someday we're able to meet and work again in person. But in the meantime, I think it's just, you have to be more intentional about reaching out to people, about talking to people, you know, making sure that everything is clearly communicated in writing you know when people aren't always on the same page you know in zoom meetings we got to make sure that everything's in writing got to make sure that everything is communicated to everybody maybe that they weren't even involved because it's hard there's not that like grapevine i guess so to speak like word doesn't just travel through word of mouth as fast as it did when we were all sitting together in the newsroom um and you know it's hard but i think i'm really proud of the staff for adapting. Elizabeth, how have you adapted the newsroom to to remoteness? How do you keep that sense of community going? I like what Jacob's saying about finding a way to have mentorship um, sort of peer to peer. That seems important. Definitely. It's, it is really hard and I miss it so, so much, but, um, and it's, and it's a lot of trial and error too, I would say, because I went in the summer, I thought, oh, it'd be a great idea if we just replicated, we had Zoom production where we were on Zoom every Sunday through Thursday night and people uh -huh. would come into breakout rooms. And and then the first night I did it, I was like, wow, I cannot be on Zoom all day in class. And also <laughs> for all hours of the night, this is not gonna work. So instead we've been doing once a week for a couple hours, we'll have, I tell all the managing editors to come in and tell them to encourage their staffers if they want to drop by and say hi or have a question, um, I can send them into a breakout room. So we've been trying that. I don't know how successful it is. We 
wouldn't say we get a, like a ton of people, but um, for the people who do come, it's a lot of fun. And we've done things like we did a trivia night to celebrate the Michigan Daily's birthday. It's our 130th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and different sections have been doing their own um, sort of bonding events as well. So let me, Elizabeth, just stay with you with this. I want to get to a sense of, of what's happening on campus um, vis-a-vis the political tensions in the state. Both of you are in states that in recent memory have voted either for Republicans or Democrats. So I guess we call those purple states. Michigan has tended to trend more blue, but not in the last election. And Michigan certainly has been in the news a lot uh, with Gretchen Whitmer and with the protests at the state house, the armed protests, and some of those photographs, I think, crystallized early on for people that we were in the middle of a national struggle uh, over a pandemic that was going to be played out in with visuals and with language and terms that we wouldn't have thought of about masks or about social distancing. I'm sure that must manifest itself on campus. I mean, the student body is a reflection of the population of the state may not be a perfect approximation because there are obviously uh, class issues there and cost issues there, but most state schools do reflect the population overall or try to. So I guess with that as background, could you take us a little bit into what it's been like to experience and to report the tensions on campus? Are there anti-mask activists on campus? Are there anti-Whitmer advocates on campus? Break that down for us. So actually, I we have not seen that those tensions play out as much on campus. Um, and I think, you know, it might be we do have a, a pretty large out of state population. Um, I think, you know, mostly the protests we've been seeing are, you know, protests against the administration trying to get more COVID protocols. And um, I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything that happened over the summer in terms of there were any stay open protests, I feel like there might have been, but not not originating from students. Um, I think, you know, mostly that we we cover, we absolutely cover those tensions and we, you know, I think they do trickle down to campus, but maybe, you know, it's not as explicit right now. We're, we're gearing up for the election because we think that maybe some of the underlying tensions um, will really erupt on campus as well and, and campus won't be excluded from that but I haven't we haven't seen that as much right now and you had staff covering um, the protests at the state house yes we did we did we sent a reporter there and tell us a little bit about what it was like to cover the murder of George Floyd and the social justice protests that followed what was what was that like? Because you not only have the responsibility to cover that in Michigan, but also on your campus. Yeah. So I I was not in charge of the paper over the summer, but our summer staff did a really comprehensive job of covering the protests on campus. But also we had, we sent a team of reporters um, kind of across to Detroit and then around Metro Detroit. They, they had a whole series of just kind of documenting the different protests there. Um, and you know i think it was it was it was such a historic time and it's it's definitely i think it's the impact the immediate 
protests on campus and, you know, like the influx of social media posts and that has, has seemed to like at least halter a little bit in terms of the University of Michigan community, but it's trickled into, we had our, our graduate students went on strike and they had demands about reevaluating our police force, diver, diverting funds from our police force. Um, our university is not made explicit um, decisions about, about that yet, other than creating a task force to discuss it. But yeah, it's, it's the effects are, are still playing out. So here you have yet another, I mean, it's hard enough to get re good reporting and updates from the administration about the public health crisis. And now you have this other layer on top, which is how will the university comport itself in this time in which broad base of people are calling for social justice? Is that illuminated conflicts that the pandemic had not illuminated? Yeah. Um, so you're you're asking has has it illuminated the like the the racial justice aspect of mm -hmm. the yeah um, yeah I mean I I think we there were definitely there were students talking about um, course curriculum and and professors that you know incidents with professors um, you know saying the n word or saying things that you know, should not be said and make students uncomfortable and how the universities respond to that. And we've had a lot of, you know, a long history of, um, you know, racist incidents and how, you know, and, and, you know, a kind of a lack of a firm response from the university and, and firm consequences for that. Um, and it's, that's an ongoing conflict and it's been brought renewed attention to that. Jacob, let me get the same sort of sense from you and, and it looked like you've made some modifications you may have also done this at michigan elizabeth but jacob it looks like you've made some modifications to the to the newspaper as well in terms of the new section a new focus uh for black voices on campus and things like that I, I maybe you could speak generally about the what it was like to be part of the paper through this time in that regard but also how you see the paper as an instrument of anti-racism on campus Yeah, for sure. So, you know, like the Michigan Daily over the summer, we covered the protests here in Bloomington and in Indianapolis, you know, following the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and I'm, you know, the staff did a phenomenal job over the summer of telling the stories, um, you know, with the respect they deserve, you know, here in Bloomington over the summer, at the end of the summer, there was an attempted, almost um, attempted lynching of a black man um, just outside Bloomington that, you know, sparked a huge protest. Um, where, you know, a protester was struck by a car at this protest, you know, she was hit by a car and our staff covered that, um, you know, as well as, you know, moving on into this current semester, there's been a lot of protests surrounding the student government, um, and how it, you know, is it representative of the demands of students? Is it representative of students' concerns? Um, and we've been covering those protests as well. Um, and then to answer your second question, over the summer we were talking about how we can use our pla our platform at the paper as a way to, you know, amplify, you know, underrepresented voices. So that is what that is what prompted us to launch, you know, in consultation with the faculty advisor for the National Association of Black Journalists chapter here at IU. She had the idea to create a Black Voices section. So that section is really great because it's it's just a platform 
you know, almost like a blank canvas for, you know, black and other underrepresented students to share their work, their perspectives, their art, and to also get paid for that. Um, and we've been really, really, I've been really impressed, you know, with the support that we've gotten, you know, from the community, from students, from faculty, and everything coming out of that section just amazes me. It's, it's really great work. Um, and I'm really happy that we've been able to provide a space for people to share um, their work in a way that's not like tokenizing. And I think that was one of the biggest concerns. Um, but so far, that has not been the case. And I'm, you know, really proud of that section. Well, congratulations on that. That's an important uh, addition to the to the paper, it sounds like. And I guess I'd like to also get a sense from you, same question I had for Elizabeth about, you know, in a state that reflects the many different tensions pulling America apart at this time, either with racial justice or with the pandemic, how's that playing out on your campus? And how is it playing out in the pages of your, of your newspaper? So um, the first part, I don't think, you know, on campus, we haven't really seen like the widespread like protests against wearing masks or the public safety measures um, that, both the university and the county plus the state have put into place. There hasn't been protests, thankfully, about you know the, the effectiveness of wearing masks in public to avoid the spread of COVID nineteen. Um, but you know, you know, one concern, and you know, I've read, you know, shouldn't do it, but reading like Facebook comments on our posts is people are like, why are you still covering? People are tired of, specifically put, people are tired of coronavirus. You know, I'm tired of coronavirus too, and I'm sure both of you are. Um, but this is a public health matter that affects all of us, and it's we need to cover it. We need to cover how the county is handling Greek housing. We need to cover the limits on private gatherings. We need to cover why we the state moved to fully reopen um, and why they're still reopen fully despite a spike in cases. Um, so just because I think people are tired of hearing about coronavirus, it's not any less important and we will still continue to put it in our paper and online. I guess there's, it's become a sort of truism now that you shouldn't read the comments. <laughs> uh, anytime I publish an op-ed, I'm pretty studiously avoid the comments, but you're both editors. You can't, you don't have that. Well, maybe you do exert that luxury. I'm not sure, but I, I'd like to know, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's always attention in journalism particularly if you pay attention to having a robust uh, op-ed page that you want to give a space, needs to be a space for thoughtful discussion. Thoughtful discussion is in short supply in America right now. How have you balanced that in this time? What kinds of tools do you have? Or do you run the pieces and let the comments fly and hope for the best? How do you, how do you manage that? Elizabeth, let me hear from you first on that. Yeah, um, definitely the co some some comments just kind of make me laugh. Like we've had a few comments. Um, this newspaper is so pessimistic. It's just terrible. Like unsubscribe. <laughs> Where you know, sorry, this is, not, this is not optimistic news time. in the middle of a pandemic, and you're not supplying that for them. I, I guess not. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think we you, we obviously, you know, you have to balance different perspectives, but 
at a certain point when it's a matter of public health and you know experts and and every and epidemiologists and are saying a certain one thing um you know it's there's a difference between i guess including all perspectives and then including perspectives that come from a fundamentally flawed um flawed logic and and logic that it could really put people in danger um making sure not to give a platform to, to that so that's important because i mean even on twitter right now they're taking down or they're putting warnings up sometimes from tweets from the president of the united states so you won't publish an op-ed or you will take down a comment in which somebody's putting forward public health information that you feel is incorrect yeah so we we actually are we still this reminds me that we need um we're working on a protocol a specific protocol for how to handle comments especially we've been got, getting a lot more comments on our instagram especially um and i think we've we've taken down a few or well, i'm thinking of one that just are blatantly spreading you know false and and harmful or racist rhetoric like we those kinds of things we you know we don't we will take that down. Just want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about student journalism and the pandemic with Jacob DeCastro and Elizabeth Lawrence. Jacob, I'd like to get a sense from you on that same question, how you how you handle free speech issues and particularly, um, you know, the president makes no apologies for the fact that the press is, as he sees it, the enemy of the people. I, he, I've never heard him say, except for student newspapers. So my sense is that the press in general is lumped in. Um, what's your editorial stance on that? And I'd like to hear how you're dealing uh, with your with these kinds of issues that Elizabeth raised about even in the comments that can sometimes be really toxic things. Is it your role to police that? Well, you know, we try our best to kind of stay hands off on our comments, but we do have our comment policy. You know, if you're attacking someone, if it's becoming personal, if it's false, you know, if it's just blatant disinformation, um, you know, or something that's just, you know, obscene, we will not let that run and we'll take that down. Um, you know, that's, you know, this comment policy was originally just for our website, but we have since adapted it to our social media accounts because we're, we, we want people to be able to have thoughtful, insightful discussion in the comments, you know, whether it's on the website or on social media. But when things turn, you know, negative, that's just not something that we're here to condone. Um, so when things are in violation, we have a, like a three strikes policy for comments. You know, if, if you make three things in violation, we'll just remove your ability to comment on our post. We don't want to do that, but it's what's fair to people that want to come for a discussion. Um, and you know, we've also had people submit letters to the editor and we're fine. We will rerun letters to the editor, but if, you know, the things inside the letter are, wouldn't meet our own like fact checking policy, for example, we can't run, we're not gonna let our, you know, opinion page be a space for people to put false information out there. So I guess that's kind of our philosophy for 
our role as a form. Right. Well, we're almost up on time. I want to get a couple more questions in. Remind folks you can get your own questions in. Just put it in the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. Every journalist I know has some stories in mind. Maybe they're not even always the stories that get the most circulation or the most traffic, but they're the ones that they feel like capture the moment. And Jacob, I wonder if you might share one with us that um, is in your paper or in another paper, but maybe from yours, if you can think of one that you feel really just sort of captures the grain of this moment on campus. So, you know, am I trying to think of something like that was like kind of fun or creative? I can't really think of anything um, off the top of my head, but I do know one something fun that we did was we ran an experiment um, to see how long it would take to get, you know, with all these concerns about the election about mail-in voting. Um, we did a little experiment to see how long it would take um, to get mail all the way across the country. So we mailed out 31 letters, you know, as far away as Florida, California, you know, around the state, you know, to the East Coast, to every region just to see if the mail was really slowed down. Um, and our conclusion was a little bit, it's a little bit slower than what, you know, they, your, your expected delivery time is one to three days. Things take, you know, three to four days on average. We did lose one piece of mail, you know, en route to its, um, to the thing that we ended to do. Which actually asked editor, it was kind of funny that that was the one that chose to get lost in the mail. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that was just something kind of a little anecdotal, but also just to kind of like confirm or deny people's suspicions about the mail and how long people need to take to mail on their ballots if they're going to vote absentee. And that, that, that's a perfect illustration of what I had in mind, because if you told me the story a year ago, I would have said, boy, I don't know how long this guy's going to be in the editorial chair. I mean, that seems like a strange story to run, <laughs> but you did investigative postal journalism from, from there and the way I hear it from, I'll look for it in the paper, but the way you've described it gives me a fair amount of confidence. Maybe things run a little slower, but you can still count on the postal service to get the mail there. Yes. Um, basically just, you know, if you want to be safe, if you get it, just put it in the mail as soon as it gets there, fill it out, put it back in the mail um, is the best way to know if it gets there, given enough time to get there safely. Elizabeth, uh, that's that's a pretty cool story. I would, I'd like to hear, you know, what have you been doing there? Maybe a story that you've done that you also think really captures this moment in time. Yeah, I'm also having a hard time thinking of just one story because we've we've run. I mean, I'm thinking of like like a big story that we ran recently was about COVID-19 in fraternity and sorority life, um, kind of talking about a lack of transparency from the university as well with that, that data and some clusters that have popped up um, uh, because of parties. Um, so that's that's in terms of, you know, just like kind of a serious encapsulation of some of the frustrations and, and um, dangerous things that are happening on campus. For a more, I guess, more positive story, so we're not just the pessimistic Michigan Daily, um, we ran a story yesterday on little free libraries, um, mm -hmm. like this community, that this was in our, our arts section, actually, um, community culture, um, you know, about those those little shelves in, in neighborhoods where you can, you give a book, mm -hmm. you take a book, you give a book mm -hmm. back. Um, and so we spoke to, I think, the a, a founder of the, the that, a similar program in Detroit and talked to some students who've created 
those in their own neighborhoods. Um, so I thought that that was a, a really a great a story that really illustrated some of the ways people are trying to stay together, um, you know, and, and trying to uplift and empower each other through a really scary and difficult time. Thanks for that. It's been a, a theme we've talked about a lot on COVID calls. The, you mentioned the weirdness of time right now. And there's just sort of a weirdness of not having to apologize for normal life. But normal life still happens once in a while. And we should still, those stories are still important to hear and, and to read. I'll make sure that we share those links to the to the stories on Twitter after the program is over. Um, just wanted to hear from both of you uh, um, before we we break. Uh, we talked about the way you're covering um, testing and getting information from the administration. That seems like that's going to be maybe the defining beat for both of you as you go through the fall. Do you think you're going to have to add more reporters to that? What What are you going to have to do to keep up with that story? I mean, Elizabeth, particularly put this question to you first, considering the news that's breaking out of Ann Arbor literally today about how that's going to be harder now. Yeah, we um, definitely, we've, we have recruited a lot of new reporters, which is needed um, to, to keep up with all of these different testing updates and, and, and COVID updates. We actually, we don't have a specific COVID beat really just because it, it's, influenced so many different aspects of the things we cover, but we have, we've put more reporters on our administration beat this semester. Um, and then we have a campus life beat, which more kind of covers student issues um, that we've devoted a lot of, of reporters and edit our senior news editors to help guide coverage with that. So um, we definitely, we need we're gonna need to keep on this story and especially with the stay in place order that was issued today. Jacob, do you foresee having to modify newsroom operations to, I mean, it seems like you've been on it, but this is a story that can change really rapidly as, as Liz was saying, literally change there today. Yeah, yeah, we have plenty of like, like Elizabeth um, and the Michigan Daily, we don't actually have like a dedicated, we, in a way, we have people covering coronavirus as it affects, you know, campus or, you know, Greek life or the city. And every reporter is kind of touching coronavirus one way or another. So I think, you know, we're just trying to have as many people try to find these stories about how coronavirus is affecting different aspects, different faucets or facets of the community. Um, so rather than just, we do have, you know, one, you know, a couple of people that, coronavirus is their beat. We have people also covering, people on like the city beat covering how the city's responding or people, you know, in student life or how are student orgs adapting to COVID restrictions uh, and so on. So yes, you know, the story is not going away anytime soon. Um, it's meta level. And we'll keep covering it. It permeates everything. It absolutely permeates everything. Well, just on the way out, I think I'm sure anybody listening would like to know after this discussion, Jacob, are you going into journalism or? I'm, I'm, you know, I would like to, I'm keeping my options open at this point. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, working communications or journalism, we'll see. Um, but I really, I really enjoy the work that I do. And I'd love to keep doing it. The experience of being the editor has built your excitement for continuing yes. to go in this work. Yeah, good. 
Elizabeth, same same question for you. Is that the is that the pathway after graduation? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, I I love it, and I'm I think probably kind of addicted to it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and super quickly, I I didn't mention this when you asked the question about um, projects or, or, or how our stuff is covered. Racial justice um, protests and on campus. Um, our opinion section and our Michigan in color section, which is a section we've had that's by and for students of color on campus, collaborated on this really cool project called Miseducation. Edu Mis that was a series of stories about um, kind of truths about anti-black racism and policing that have not, you know, our university and, and just in general has not have not been dealt in as much. So just wanted to mention that because they okay. worked really hard on that and that was great. Yeah. Good, thanks for that. Well. Um, just super impressed with the work you're both doing. Please keep it up. Uh, we need it. We all need it. And um, I would say also that um, as a person who works in a university, myself, um, we need student journalists to help us um, more than people sometimes realize that you can get at truths and facts and data in ways that uh, faculty can't or members of the community can't. So just, you know, completely in awe of what you're accomplishing right now and all the work that's going into it. And thanks a lot for coming on COVID calls to talk about it today. Yeah, thank you so much. Yep, thank you again. Just to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we'll have a discussion about data and the pandemic. So please do join us for that and stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, five o'clock.